Achilles. Some sort of Greek war hero, I'd mumble whenever somebody asked about my name. Either they were morons who'd never heard about Homer in the Iliad, or they were making some subtle comment about my parents' choice of names for me, as if my mom and dad were crazy or weird. It was a family name, my grandfather's brother or something, whom my father had admired. But this was Potawatomi Rapids, epicenter of American anti-intellectualism. I think I've heard of the eyelids, some idiot said to me once. That wooden horse they named after the rubbers? As a teenager, I started calling myself Chill, just to throw people off. This was years before the word became popular slang for cool, but when it did, I ran into other problems. For a few years, in fact, it really was distinctive, but then Chill passed into the vernacular, and every other teenager was talking about chill pills and whatnot, and I was plagued by stupidity again. You chillin' today, chill? You just be chillin'? I'd like to start calling myself something else now, but this is Potawatomi Rapids, after all, where everybody knows everybody else. I'd never get away with it. Not a second time. Welcome to No Extra Words, the Flash Fiction Podcast. My name is Chris Baker Dersh. I'm your producer and editor. You just heard Charles Rammelkamp reading his story, Achilles. Coming up next, Marina Francis Mullars reads What We Talk About When We Talk About Homer. Today's stories mesh really well, but are also very different. Charles Rammelkamp's story, Achilles, is just around 200 words long. So it's not quite microfiction, but almost. And I actually broke my own rules with Marina Francis Mular's story. It is longer than our normal submission guidelines allow for. It really isn't flash fiction at all. It's more of a short story. And it has a very, very different feel to it as a result. So I really like these stories together. They both really play with that idea of legend. Achilles is obviously not someone who carries the name of a legend and what impact that has on your life. What we talk about when we talk about Homer is really about a kid who becomes legend in a very unique way. It was really fun to have two stories read for you by the contributors because I got to be an audience member this time around. I wasn't recording or anything like that. I just got to sit in front of my computer and hear these authors read their work, which was really fun, especially hearing how different a real 2300 word short story feels compared to these little micro bits of flash fiction that we ordinarily hear on this show so that was fun i hope you get to have the same experience listening in your own way next week we are going to celebrate armistice day with a special episode of no extra words so i'm looking forward to bringing you that in the meantime here is marina francis mullars with what we talk about when we talk about homer have a great week It was a universal shame that the yearbook budget didn't allow for a scratch-and-sniff feature. Some might even call it a minor tragedy. The scratch-and-sniff could have done a whole lot, could have finally untangled everybody from everybody else for a far more vivid rendering of the 8th grade class of Freedom Point Junior High. 
almost everybody could have been grouped by common scent instead of alphabetical whatever, for starters. The jacks and whatever the wrestlers really were could just be a whole sheet of mildew and deodorant and desperate trophy anxiety. The preps could smell like under-polo boob touching and those little bead packets that come with new expensive sneakers, and the vacant squares where their faces ought to be could just be tiny little samples of their girlfriend's body sprays, vanilla frosting, maple syrup, moonlit Winnebago path. Tally Major's smell could go on every guy's square. The weirdos would probably get the last few pages of the yearbook because there'd be so many different kinds of scents to deal with. Daydreamer fog, broken home cigarette box dinner, acne picker and thumb sucker sweat. Somebody like Rat Tail might even need his own insert because it'd probably cost a little bit more for the luxury of synthetic dried semen and blood smells. And there'd be almost no other way to keep it from infecting everybody else's personal space, which was seemingly Rat Tail's goal on and off the page. Then again, who knows? Maybe it wouldn't be too far off from Winnebago Moonlit Path. Some people would even be harder to pinpoint, not because they were so dangerously distinct, but because they didn't have much to them at all. The in-betweeners and the wannabes would have to have their sense updated almost monthly, and with that, their sense would have to be slightly off every single time, like just a little short of anything really credible. They'd probably have to settle for hand soap or something equally inoffensive, sort of a subtle disappearing, maybe a spray or something. That could also benefit somebody like Lauren Price, who moved away after everybody realized that she was such a little biatch. The yearbook people would have to be real careful with the disappearing stuff, though, the spray or whatever it was. Most students wouldn't want to be anywhere near something like that. That could be another universal shame. Homer Greeley would be some other issue entirely. Nobody would be able to scratch or sniff Homer, because nobody really knew Homer at all. That's who he was, almost fully and completely. Never in a club, never in a class, never on a bus route or a phone tree or a roster, but always dressed up in the middle of a row of yearbook portraits just in the nick of time. After that, gone, almost completely, until the next one came around. Though nobody knew Homer, really knew him. Everybody knew Homer's mom and all the things she'd drop by the main office for teachers and kids who got bribed to be good. Oatmeal cookies, chocolate-covered blondies, povatitsa, whatever that was. She'd come by and leave some bag of something and drop Homer's backpack off every time he forgot it, and everybody in the office would struggle with who to give it to. Then, at the end of the day, Homer's dad would come pick it back up when Homer forgot to bring it home. That's how it went every day, every week. And then at the end of the week, for what seemed like centuries, Homer's mom would pop back in to get another copy of the permission slip for the 8th grade earth science trip to see Jurassic Park at the strip mall Cinema 12. Because boys will be boys and lose sight of responsibility sometimes. Somebody in the office was always happy to try and help her, even if Cinema 12 closed down 
five years after Homer died. Everybody knew that part about Homer, the dead part. That's why everybody at Freedom Point had to wear bike helmets. And if they didn't, they got written up and had to help the girls in the office photocopy old Jurassic Park permission slips so that somebody could watch them feel guilty and feel afraid, even more afraid than what was typically allowed for life at ages 12 to 14. And the helmets had to fit, too, not some eggshell, one-size-for-all kind of setup. They had to be custom-fit, so that if anybody else's mom forgot to check the rearview mirror in the driveway, they could get hit and still be okay, and get back up and get some sort of shame-fueled second serving of dessert at dinner. And life could just go on without everybody having to make a constant effort all the time. Nobody ever really said it like that, though. Maybe at one point, but not anymore. Not twenty years after the fact. On especially bad days, Homer's mom didn't just drop the backpack off. She brought in bowls of soup or cereal, always room temperature, spoon and all, because Homer must have been so busy with his friends that he forgot to eat again. On those days, Homer's mom would linger a little bit longer and then find the courage to ask if she could see the photo they thought they might use for Homer's final school portrait. Eighth grade, she'd say. This is it. The girls in the main office kept the photo in an envelope in a drawer with all the spoons Homer's dad didn't have the chance to pick up yet. He never asked to see the photo, Homer's dad. The photo so young and so old all at once. Almost filmy, some might say, muted. Originally printed for the first yearbook. The real one. The one where people definitely remembered Homer for Homer his scent instead of his legacy. Not that that was particularly better. Still, more thorough, more concrete, more honest. Homer's mom never really said much when the girls in the office brought the photo out. The silence got louder when she got the oxygen tank, when she got older on her own, begrudgingly. The picture was just for looking at, until she found the courage to touch Homer's face, and then his hands, and then both of them at the same time. Sometimes she'd pick the photo up and hold it, his whole body in her hands, and smell where his hair hit the light. Then she'd take so much time to put it back down on the desk, as if it were much heavier than she could manage. Nobody in the office ever answered phones until she finally found something to say. Yes, she'd say, soft and tired. This is the one. She'd always linger just a little bit longer after that, like she'd realized something or accessed something she had turned off long ago. Homer's dad was to be contacted immediately if anything like that ever happened, but nobody ever needed to call. Homer's mom always found a way to carry on. I think he'll like high school. Don't you, she'd say. Once everybody in the office agreed, Homer's mom would go back outside and cross the street and head home. She almost always stopped in the driveway, almost waiting for something to appear before continuing on with whatever needed to be done. The photo would go back in the drawer until somebody else needed proof of something. 
At a certain point, it was hard to distinguish who was really keeping Homer around. For the first little while, when there was just uncomplicated sadness, it was Homer's dad that needed everybody's help, and Homer's dad that knew how to ask for it, in memorial trees and candle lightings. People said Homer's mom stayed pretty quiet back then, while Homer's dad figured out how to keep on living. That's when they sold the house, the driveway too, and brought a new place near the school so Homer's dad could get a closer view of active energy, of Homer's spirit maybe, before it was time to go back to work. At some point, Homer's mom seemed to take over the watching, boys being boys, girls chasing after them, one little guy outside with no coat, waiting for a ride that forgot the schedule. Rumor had it that Homer's mom tried to snatch him up one time, tried to simply pick him up and carry him away until someone from the office came out and peeled her off as she went on about chicken and stars. That's when things got worse and her brain stopped working, and nobody, including Homer's dad, had the heart to remind her every single morning that whoever she saw in the red sweatshirt wasn't Homer. Neither was the boy popping wheelies or the one with the big poster board in the rain. In a way, it just seemed easier to accept that they were all Homer, that every 14-year-old boy would be Homer, that Homer would magically appear any time somebody with hair gel and knee scabs and giant backpack went by. At some point, Somebody had decided that that's what helped Homer's mom deal with the memory. Freedom Point never forgot, though. Never had the chance or the choice or the heart to. Homer's legacy became their responsibility once Homer's mom started wandering over and asking about the field trip and the photo and the cereal. As long as she stayed, he stayed. It wasn't all memorial bonsais, though. Boys would be boys, especially the 6th and 7th graders who weren't old enough to learn the early rhythms of trying to be meaningful, whatever that might look or smell like. When wannabe girls pretended to have non-existent boyfriends, class clowns would poke fun at Homer's expense. Where'd you guys meet? Cinema 12, they'd say, all amped up on Mountain Dew and invisible testosterone. Some other group once spread a rumor that Homer's ghost haunted the girls' locker room, which led to an unfortunate trend in anti-showering. One Halloween, a bully kid went to Homer's parents' house and asked if Homer was home as a dare for a handful of nougat. Homer's dad called the school the next Monday. By the time the bully kid graduated, he had personally copied 492 Jurassic Park permission slips. Most of the time, though, people were pretty nice, especially the eighth graders, the ones that really mattered at the end of the day. Every year, they all got together at the end of the summer with their parents and the teachers and talked about the upcoming school year and the perks associated with their imminent departure. Extra spirit days, peer mentor badges, vending machine access, the annual class gift, which seemed to always be a flag or a new bench for local stoners to abuse. The assembly would also serve as a small forum for students to propose things that they might like the school to give them as well, which often included free reign on chewing gum and cell phones and pocket knives, and, most recently, scratch-and-sniff yearbooks, 
which got everybody riled up, which made Principal McPhee shoot the idea down immediately. Think about the places your classmates have been, he said. Even just their hands. Really just think about that. People felt weird then, weirder than usual. In a triumphant rebound, he said that pocket knives could be considered, but only the kind that don't have corkscrews, he said. At the end of the night, as with every annual assembly, Coach Henry wrapped the whole thing up with a lecture about being somebody to look up to, which would naturally segue into the deal with Homer's picture and how Homer's mom had been having a hard time lately, which accidentally lasted for 20 years, and it would just be nice if Homer could share the same page with the other 8th graders as a memorial of sorts, except if Homer's mother was ever around, it wouldn't be necessary to call it that. Perhaps it'd be more fitting to choose a club, or a team, or a class that one might share with Homer if he were still there, if 34-year-olds still happened to be in junior high. The picture made it in, would probably always make it in. Though Homer's mom could have easily been fooled by the same recycled yearbook each year, and Homer's dad didn't need much of it either, the endless stream of Freedom Point Junior High 8th graders delighted in inviting Homer into their class for a lot of reasons. Sometimes just because it seemed like the right thing to do. For whoever really loved Homer, wherever they went when he went. Other students said they sort of liked the picture because of tradition. Because other kids their same age, who used their same textbooks and their same lockers did it too. And that was enough of a reason to do anything. Most of the time, though, whether anybody actually admitted it to anybody, Homer's picture proved that eighth graders do, in fact, happen and matter. Whether they suck their thumbs or they eat their feelings or kiss every boy that has a pair of lips. And Freedom Point Junior High doesn't forget them. Not any of them. Not even the ones that don't do nearly enough to have anybody remember much of anything at all. Homer was nobody, or it at least felt that way, and in that sense, he was everybody, all at once. Maybe it was all right that the scratch-and-sniff stuff didn't happen. The science behind it needed work, and the pages would probably stick, and it would be a whole hassle to figure out how to keep all the smells separate. It'd probably be years until someone had the chance or the time or the drive to untangle everybody from everybody else, if it was even an option. By then, Homer's mom would probably be gone in a new way, a more permanent one. Homer's dad, too. By then, it'd be nearly impossible to get the most accurate scent, to really locate the essential piece of what it meant and what it means to be somebody. Anybody, especially in a town like Freedom Point.